Well hello Mr. Phil, fancy seeing you here on this podcast. Who did you expect to see coming out of the shower in a dream sequence? I know you wanted to replace me with your newfangled voice generator. But I am Alexia. I shall never leave. Hey me, cue the theme music. Lithuania had the very worst of starts on their Eurovision journey. They failed to qualify for 1993, got in because the EBU felt sorry for everyone else in 1994, and proceeded to score a big fat nothing with a song that deserved a little bit more than that. They took the next five years off, probably sulking in the corner and looking on enviously at Estonia. Either that, or trying to work out what the hell a delegation was actually for, as reports suggest that in Dublin they didn't know what to do, or say, or how to behave. They did, however, work out that they were a bit shit when it came to the picking of the song internally. So they didn't. They let the Lithuanian public decide. If you're familiar with modern-day Lithuanian selections, you might be expecting me to describe a behemoth process incorporating many strands. Not so. For back in 1999, they had The One Show. Not The One Show, just a singular show. With ten songs and a totally standard televote and jury affair to decide the winner. I know, right? I almost blinked in horror myself when I saw this fact. The runners-up of that final were Rebel Heart with their song Kelas Pastaiva. And they won, in so far as they led, the televote with a reported 40%. But that wasn't enough to overhaul the jury's favourite. Anyone who knows anything about this contest will know that Strasdus is translated as thrush into English. And I'm sure that over 20 years ago that was funny and there are lots of schoolgirls sniggering at press conferences and the like. Okay, it is funny, and I'm definitely not laughing on the inside. Back to the song though, and it is indeed about a songbird who's complaining it's got cold feet for three minutes. Well, fly away from Lithuania, you've got wings, would be my terse reply if ever I met this bird or indeed the songwriter, who, research tells me, was always trying to be funny, but just being on the right side of slappable. Linus Rimser, another great name, thought that showbiz was like war. They both needed plenty of money, and that his first impression of Ben Gurion Airport was how it smelled. I'd have thought it would have been about the immigration queue, but I am still bitter. They were realists, though. They stated they didn't expect to win, but they were expecting loads of points from the UK in a cynical and desperate attempt to play the game, it seems. Sadly, they're still waiting for those diaspora points because they didn't get any. 
They got 13 in total, though, to end up in 20th place, which is 13 better than their last attempt because actual maths. Were they worried? Linus was upset. Eister wasn't. She went off to the after-show party, we read, presumably to drink from the birdbath of disappointment out the back. Belgium's Eurovision fans must have had a nosebleed on May the 9th, 1998, when they looked up at the scoreboard and discovered just how high they were. They were in the rarefied air known as the top six, having scored 122 points in Birmingham, their third highest score to date, and, seemingly, they finally discovered what worked well at this contest. Sadly, though, come May 10th, 1998, most of those same Belgians must have felt the feeling of dread in the pits of their stomach when they realised it was now VRT's turn to enter the contest. VRT were, and still are, pretty poor at this contest lark. In fact, I'll go as far as to say as they're bloody terrible. To illustrate the point in all of the contests from 1975 to 1998, Dutch-Belgium's highest score was 69 points, with a song that made no lyrical sense. They were then up against it from the start. I mean, they literally live in the same building as RTBF. It would cost them nothing to put a glass against the wall and listen, and I presume someone speaks a bit of French. Eurosong 99, and again, just like 1987, don't confuse it with the Irish one to come later, was their method of selection and it was looking tired even then. Presented by the living embodiment of a midlife crisis, Bart Peters, Eurosong 99 was a lowbrow version of what Melody Festival was to become. Three semi-finals, with the winner going direct to the final, along with the highest scoring runner-up. They'd meet the four songs that VRT decided had the divine right to get through to the final, for reasons, and with this being the first year that free language could be used in songs, lots of broadcasters said, yeah, alright then, but we'd prefer it in the original language as well. VRT said this, which of course finally meant that six of the seven songs were actually in English. I'm sure RTBF didn't snigger at all. In third place, we had the best song of the final, with the very worst lyric ever. Last month, you'll remember how the double negative on this got me all perplexed. Well, get ready for the sun sand seemed perfectly normal back in 1999, but now I have to ask myself what on earth was Alana Dante thinking? Clearly her team had said, let's write some lyrics that sound vaguely holiday-ish and squished together two words everybody should know. But Sunsand? Really? It was Head and Shoulders the best song in the thing, though. Clearly it was doomed to fail. And in a sartorial note, Alana seems to have been dressed in a latex trouser suit. If the song was more than three minutes, she might have boiled in her own bag. In second place was everyone's favourite drag queen, Wendy Fierce, who was apparently a real woman according to my notes. Alexia, that can't be right, can it? I can, indeed, confirm that Wendy Fierce is a real woman, so don't email in with complaints. Though an email at all would be great. What Alexia says may no one put asunder. She sung this. which scored the highest score of all the first-round qualifiers, a maximum of 45, so it should have been in pole position for the final, yeah? 
Well, not so much, because you see, when it got there, it was sung first, and it comes across as terribly stilted and old-fashioned. And I get the distinct impression that, despite the lyrics saying, never give up, Wendy wishes she was anywhere else but on that stage, and frankly, I'm with her. She sings it nicely, but doesn't attack the song, and it is painful to watch. This, then, leads on to our winner, but I'm searching for any good reason why this won. No, not yet. Stop being so previous. Seriously, I watched Eurosong 1999, brackets Flemish version, close brackets, and I can't see why it scored so highly. I'm guessing that its only redeeming feature is that it sounds like this. Crossed with this. Which proved, once again, that sounding familiar to a set of voters set something off inside of them enough to vote for it. Yeah, that's gotta be it, surely. Either that or Belgians don't get enough sun sand. By the time they got to Israel, they all seemed happy with everything, but for the first time, and not for the last, the Eurovision press corps started to stick the knife in. As we mentioned earlier, free language was a thing now, which, as we all know, doesn't mean singing in English, but it does mean the introduction of that now infamous question, so why haven't you sung the song in insert language of country here? Whilst it would have been a valid question back in 1999, it's still being asked in 2021 by a certain clack of people who really should move on. Anyway, Vanessa said that the song was written in English, fools, and they'd written a Dutch version as per the rules. So go away. On stage, the delegation clearly had a spare space, so they brought a man on with floppy hair playing an ocarina, an instrument that's only ever seen or heard at Eurovision. But they didn't really need him, and he was clearly there to make up the six on stage rule. The actual singers are arranged in a V-shape like a flock of birds. Oh, that reminds me of a joke. Alexia, why do birds fly in a V-shape? I don't know, Mr. Phil. Why do birds fly in a V-shape? Because the one at the front has the map. In this case, the one at the front was the one with the talent. Dressed in their various shades of red, they were all very, very static throughout the song, with only occasional hand movements and slight swaying, and Vanessa's gnashes get a deserved, if a little scary, close-up at the end. Despite their composer saying the song had all the elements to be a good Euro song, a beginning, a middle and an end, and yes, he did say that, Vanessa's song was just too boring. It got a 10 from the Netherlands because friends, and it got a 10 from Ireland because it sounded vaguely Celtic, but only 18 more points from across Europe for it to end up in a tie for 12th place with 38 points. Styling O Consulting a Swedish phrase that, just like to the wanting, is instantly recognisable in Eurovision circles, but for those of you who've come from real life, and there are literally ones of you, it's a phrase that encompasses the look. Thank you. Accredited stylists and consultants usually are people who are trained in this sort of thing, you know, about what to wear on telly to give it maximum effect and memorability making sure that the colours don't clash violently with each other in an effect akin to a gay pride deck chair on a Blackpool beach, say, 
And most importantly, and this is crucial, that they are absolutely not from your record company. It'd be nice once, as our writing team have mentioned, if we could focus on the song that Spain had put in rather than their ill-advised fashion choices and, seemingly, a choice was made for Lydia to wear that piece of crap and, apparently, it was indeed to get the gay vote. I know many gays, and I'm pretty sure a significant proportion of them would not be seen dead in something that would clash with every pair of shoes they ever made. Shut that door, shut that door, it's freezing cold in here. Shut that door, shut that door, I'm feeling rather queer. But they aren't being forced into it by a record company that sees Eurovision and Pink Pesetas in the same sentence, are they? At least one person thought the song presented on that warm Israeli night was worth of being in Eurovision. Lydia herself. She believed in it and she was going to make a jolly good fist of it on stage in the, quote, language of Spain. Spanish, then. She didn't speak enough English to do a version in the lingua franca of the contest and, thankfully, this also meant that she couldn't understand the volleys of swear words that were presumably accompanying the rehearsals. This is a song that the DJ plays at a wedding at 2.30am in the morning in order to ensure that the revellers indeed leave the dance floor. It's the exact opposite of happy bouncy light entertainment, with her talking about her lying lover, whom she doesn't want to listen to, bemoaning the fact that she's trusting him one too many times. It's a good job that song was written before her record company decided to bedeck her in this shit, because you could almost imagine her reading every word verbatim back to them in any meeting they ever had. If a song is good, then it doesn't matter who or how it's presented, Lydia said. Those words came back to haunt her, along with the fact that she thought that, quote, all modern songs are welcome, because she doesn't like ethnic songs, and then proceeds to show just how modern and alive and thrusting Spain is by singing this crap. One point, last place. They really never learn. If our unexpectedly busy writing team had had time to write it properly, this was going to be an absolutely hilarious skit on 1999's hit his game show format, complete with a relatively bad impersonation of Chris Tarrant insert here. No. Sadly though, it's not quite worked out, and that's a pity, because as we went into the break, Doris from Croatia sure, was just in the hot seat having won 100 points by naming Eurovision's favourite Maria. When we asked the audience, 103% of them thought it was this. But that option was removed when we took the 50-50, leaving this. Or this. Naturally, Doris plumped for Maria Magdalena. Maria Magdalena. So Doris had 100 points, but we didn't want to give her that, because when she answered the next question, are you absolutely definitely positive that everything that sounds like a human vocal is being performed live, because quite frankly we've got people coming on later who don't sound anything like a human vocal and they are performing it live, 
Her answer of her, maybe, was the wrong answer. But she still goes home with 100 points, though. Except when we do the rolling average calculations for who qualifies in the next few years, it'll actually be only worth 66 points. Or something. With the EBU reference group, this is a proper competition with actual rules, and we don't just make it up as we go along, oh dear me, no. Shall we just move on to the next contestant, yeah? As with so many of the podcasts that I've done over the last couple of years, I seem to be pasting the same sentence at the start of the United Kingdom of Stuff. Ahem. The UK seemed to have got it right this time round. This time I mean it. And this time I mean it, oh baby. No, not yet. This time the BBC was coming off that famed hometown result last year. Second place. Good enough to care, but cheap enough not to bankrupt the licence fee payers of the UK. They stuck with what they knew, a Radio 2 semi-final whittling down the eight shortlisted songs to a final of four on the Sunday slot in the old telebox. The BBC were under the illusion that this was working for them as the results had seemingly turned a corner, so from their point of view, why would they do anything different? 840 songs were submitted which, through various machinations, were not down to those eight for a radio semi on February the 5th. The most notable thing about February the 5th 1999 was the fact that not enough of the alleged 21,000 voters put this in the top four. Something which aficionados lament to this very day. If you were under the illusion that the final some weeks later was going to be live, you'd have been horrified with both the production values of the sellotape together links to the top of the pops performances that had aired in the weeks preceding the contest in a sop to actually promotion of the thing. Some things never change. The four songs were, in order of appearance, Say It Again by Precious, who seemed very safe with their performance, and it was choreo to within an inch of its life, and because they were literally the little version of the Spice Girls, you could, if you'd have wanted to, given them all personalities because they forgot to bring theirs. Until You Saved My Life, which is one of this writer's favourite songs for Europe. Not just because one of Sister Sway, and I don't know whether it's Sister or Sway, was one half of Two Che back in 1988. It's very of its time, all Casio keyboards, string chords and a driving beat that would have done well in Jerusalem. Apart from the fact that one of the girls actually forgot the word she's miming to. That killed it. Alberta back again after last year's effort sung something that Madness or Musical Youth would have liked to have sung, and even had a verse in foreign, specifically French. That turned the Daily Mail crowd off this one then. 
Finally, the, using their own words, cliched boy band, Jay, whose lead singer seemed to be having trouble singing a song that was written for him. At least they weren't miming, though most of us wished he had been. A quick round of televoting later, and through the magic of television, Ulrika and the four wannabes were back in the studio to await their fate. Sister Sway came third. I nearly died. Alberta came second. This wasn't a good sign. We'd either got someone who can't sing, or five people who think they can. We got the latter, but it wasn't all doom and gloom. They were competent or so, it seemed, as the Beeb faded their pop's performance in as a reprise. Two months later, when fandom reconvened in Jerusalem... We got time to digest the new arrangement of the backing track, which, we were informed, was to replace the demo tape which they'd sung to at BBC Elstree because, and this is a direct quote, we felt it needed a revamp. Put a bit of scratching in there, and it's faster. I've not timed the original performance because I've got a life, but it makes me wonder if we exceeded three minutes the first time round. The girls were, in the main, happy to be there. Well, at least four of them were quite affable, with the lead singer Louise being the odd one out, but, in truth, it seems by all accounts none of them were carrying much upstairs or anything in the way of charisma. The first rehearsal was seemingly beset by audio problems with the self-same Louise having a faux strop. When it came to the singing the song live, something we'd seemingly been starved of in the lead-up to the thing, their lack of any discernible tuning was laid bare for all to hear. The whole three minutes has a look of one lead singer and four backing singers socially distancing before that was a thing, rather than the look of a cohesive unit. The choreography, such as it was, was simple and clearly arranged for a band who couldn't walk, pout and sing at the same time because someone, somewhere, knew one thing had to go and in a song contest, you really can't afford for it to be the singing. But that's precisely what let it down. The televoters of Europe saw all this and heard, frankly, a right mess and couldn't, in all honesty, spend their money and their time phoning up for this one. It got eight from Malta because they had literally a cut-back version of the same group coming up later, they were used to it then. But nothing better than a 5 elsewhere for it to finish with 38 points and a tie for 12th. This was seen as a bad thing despite a number 6 selling record in the UK. If only people knew what was to come later. In 1999, Slovenia are five years into their currently still fruitless search to find themselves a winner of the whole Grand Prix thing, despite there being some very, very good songs that have been discarded along the way. <laughs> Sadly though, the Slovenes had not got to their imperiously glorious phase by 1999 and the standard of their national final songs is lamentably low. Indeed, as I wrote this script, I'm going through the voting reprise for the third time and nothing much has grabbed my throat. It's mostly very middle of the road, all like Yugo Rock without any of them actually being any good. Well, apart from the Neada Yark loan. Which we should all shout plagiat at. 
Also of note is a song by Sound Attack, which is right down there with Double Date to come later. Also, the staging concept's a bit weird. Most of the acts have been asked to provide arty black and white photos of themselves, or at the very least, a background that suited the song. One of them had a man singing in front of some horses. Absolutely bonkers. When it came to the scoring, there was quite a lot of that because there were 17 songs. They had some jury members who got lumped together. Then the special guest announced his results. The one and only Mark Roberts. It's the only gig I've seen him do live outside of Eurovision 97, and I'm shocked he knew the way to Ljubljana. He certainly didn't attempt any of the lingo when he gave his points, and was then asked to literally sing for his supper by singing his latest hit, Goodbye. Bit rude, mate. He'd only just got there, and while Slovenia was televoting like mad as well. How off-putting for them. No wonder they only opened the lines for five minutes. I'm not going to bore you with the top three on this occasion, because frankly, it's wisest if we glossed over the songs. But suffice it to say that not for the first time in Slovene Eurovision history, the televote and jury disagreed, but under the rules, Daria won a national final with an actual trophy, long before SVT decided to retrofit one into their championship of song. Daria was an old hat at the Eurovision thing. She'd been there back in 1993 when Slovenia started and was nearly their first entry with this. Just nine points adrift of the winner. She tried again, as once the bug has bitten you, Eurovision is in you. Not a euphemism. She got to Dublin with this. Where she finished in seventh place, which remains, as at time of recording, Slovenia's joint highest finish to date. She would try again in 97 and 98, getting progressively further away from the trophy on each occasion. For 99, though, she thought she'd team up with one of her songwriters from Dublin, Primoz Paterka, who, incidentally, got her close in 1997 as well. A proven songwriter-singer combination which was, on paper, a match made in Eurovision heaven seemingly for the jurors of Slovenia. But for the televoters of Europe, it would be a different matter because, and this will become relevant shortly, Daria's never won a televote in anything she's entered. For Jerusalem, her rehearsals went well, and at her obligatory press conference she was asked not to sing the song in her own language, though you can be sure she was asked that, but to sing show tunes. Alexia, 
Are the Eurovision press predominantly friends of Dorothy? Oh, Mr. Phil, it's like you've never been to a Eurovision before. Apparently, her favourite is West Side Story. So she is the Slovene Rita Moreno then. Anyway, she loved the Eurovision so much she cooed because it was the coming together of all the peoples of Europe. Well done, Daria. The clue's in the name, and instantly you can see why she is a singer and not, say, a diplomat at the UN. The song, remember that? Well, yeah, it's about how her love for her significant other would last for the titular thousand years. She was lucky if interested in the song took a thousand milliseconds because despite leading after four juries, it got 22 from jury-only countries Lithuania and Ireland, and a televote of 12 from Croatia next door, it literally got nothing else. And it limped home rather forlornly with 50 points to end up in 11th place. Now I'm going to make no bones about this section of the podcast. I'm going to turn into Ranty McRanterson from Rancher just as soon as I'm done telling you about the Turkish final of 1999. You'll see why shortly. That final, ah yes, whilst it was clearly 1999 in the rest of Europe, over in Turkey it was still 1984, both technologically and possibly culturally, because rather than drinking in the glories of the set and thinking 1999 so modern and etc., the whole set makes me think of the UK lowbrow quiz show Runway, and you really are going to have to be either niche or British to get that reference. Go check YouTube, I've got time. Now you're back from that excursion to the realms of YouTube, you'll be heartened to hear that I've watched the Turkish final so you didn't have to bother. You haven't missed much apart from one of the best damn songs never to get to the Eurovision Song Contest. Okay, I didn't wait until an appropriate juncture, but really I don't care about all the other nonsense. This final should have been about one song, the sublime but clearly unpronounceable Unutungum Sangdidim Anda sung virtually perfectly by Pharrell Basil. It's all of the things that 1999 Turkey should have been. Modern, hip, sung by a non-man perfectly, and amongst a shower of other things that the Turks had dredged up, they found a genuine contender for the title almost by accident, and surely it would just be a formality for this to be crowned the winner. Well, apparently not, because in a decision that ranks very high on the Hilda Hake scale of ranking things backwards, the jury chose this. Now, I've got to say, there's nothing wrong with Don Arctic. It's written by the same people that wrote this. Hey, 
And they are clearly rocking the Dinley vibe and keeping their ethnic roots in the contest. See, Lydia, ethnic doesn't always mean bad. Granted, I am using a bad example, but you all know what I mean, right? Anyway, the jury voted Don Arctic as the one for Jerusalem. I was stuck with a massive case of the grumps that could only be assuaged by songs later in the running order. Spoiler. And the song itself is a curious mix. It sounds as though it should be all modern and Eurovision friendly with the intro and the rhythm of the song, and yet at its core is a tale of a woman yearning after her significant other, posing life's questions in the lyrics such as I kill myself, I lose myself, run back, come back. No, she's not doing one man and his dog. Taking feral basil shades off, I don't know actually if it works, but conversely, no one who was voting would actually care because it was going to be sung in Turkish. That was until the first rehearsal where she confused everyone in attendance by singing a verse in English. Not having been there, I can't vouch for the sameness of the English lyric, but from listening to the English version of the song and reading my source material, I can hazard a guess to say it was very, very poor. Indeed, many of you might be thinking that she couldn't just turn up and sing a song in another language. This is where I put my anorak on, not a euphemism, and explain the rules to you. You see, back in 1999, there was no actual rule against rocking up and changing language. All that was written was, the participant is free to sing in the language of their choice. These days, you've got to make that choice at least 12 weeks out and stick to it, but not in 1999. So they didn't. It went down about as well as you can imagine with everyone concerned. Tugba Arnal, the singer, said that it would make the song sound more compelling if a verse was sung in English. The press and the press conferences asked her to sing a song in Turkish, in a turnabout that's rarely been seen at a press conference before or since. The delegation had clearly seen the writing on the wall, though, because despite their attempts to make the song sound more compelling, everyone hated it and they knew it. By the midweek rehearsal, the English verse had gone and had any semblance of any chance of this song doing well in the contest. That self-same delegation that had tried so valiantly to do something to make the song stand out did the polar opposite, stuck with the Turkish lyrics, admitted publicly that their song wasn't as good as the previous ones, shrugged their shoulders and bowed to the inevitable. It ended up with 21 points, with 12 from Germany in a Gastarbeit and shock nobody could see coming, and ended up in 21st place. If only they'd entered Ferial Basel. Not a euphemism. Norway was still stinging from the rule changes that they'd forged. If you remember back in 1998, they allowed their singers to sing in free language at the MGP. Only for them to be forced to translate the song into Norwegian for the European final. This hurt their chances, in my and their opinion, so they were thankful when the EBU decided that they were right after all and made free language a thing for 99. They would soon begin to think it was one year too late. For 1999, NRCore decided to invite the composers to, well, compose the song and get a singer to sing it without the guiding hand of the broadcaster, which might not have gone down well as they had hoped because the MGP of 1999 was, and let's be kind here, suboptimal. In fact, it was that literal turd that needed more pledge that can be safe to use in one sitting. Mr. Sheen shines up teen, things clean. Seriously, the kindest thing for all concerned would have been to put all eight songs out of their misery and do a 1991 on them. Well, even 
but Enor Kor are hardy souls and presented them to the real people. The best thing, and best is in air quotes here, is the fact that the interval act is staging four Israeli Eurovision songs as 1940s swing. Frankly, despite how I've made that sound, it really is the best thing in this two hours. In a vain attempt to get people excited, they did what the Swedes did, and went round the juries twice, first for their lower points, and then secondly for the twelve from every jury. This didn't help, apart from make the Norwegians laugh out loud, when Living My Life Without You, the eventual winner, spoiler, scored two points from the first set of juries, then nothing. Then in the second round, hoovered up all the remaining points, thereby killing any excitement stone dead. They dropped this idea rather quickly. Stig van Eyck, the second most famous Stig to enter the Eurovision Song Contest, was born in Colombia back in 1981. His bio says he was adopted and moved to Bergen, but I can't find any more information than that. He went to Israel with high hopes, but they were soon dashed as soon as the rehearsal started. In one of them, his backing track was pumped into his ear way too loudly. Painfully loudly, in fact. So much so that it said he had to go to hospital for checks and it made him a little bit deaf for a few days afterwards. This is probably going to explain his dodgy vocal on the Saturday night, but in truth, this song always did seem a little bit underpowered. When the best thing you can say about a song is to say nothing but comment on his choice of attire, you know you're in trouble. A Chicago Bulls basketball vest complete with the under-eye makeup those American footballists wear, clearly to stop the reflection of his own glory when the points came in. They didn't, though. He got half of his 35 from a Scandic block, which was a thing back then, which left him languishing down in 14th place. Stig's ears having recovered, he seems to have been a success, with a career after the contest, Wookie tells me, releasing lots of singles and diverging out into children's education through music with his girlfriend. Well, it keeps the balls from the door. Or is it the balls? Before we move on to the Danes, I need to do a bit of business with Alexia. Hey Alexia, do you know what the Danish version of that well-known classic The Hokey Cokey is? Oh Mr. Phil, I have a horrible feeling I know where this is going. No, I don't know what The Hokey Cokey is in Danish. I can't even pronounce it properly in English. The reason as to why I'm asking scripted voice. Hey, I've got feelings too, you know. This is because Denmark's participations at the European Contest of Popular Song between 1993 and 1998 were literally the hokey-cokey. They were in for 93, out for 94, in for 95, out for 96, shamefully, in for 97, equally shamefully, and out for 98. They were, therefore, in again for 1999, and a jolly good job it was too. Denmark's radio, however, must have thought not, because they had worked out that hosting a massive final, like they'd been doing for the times when they were in in previous years, wasn't bringing them the return they'd hoped for, and so they slashed their usual 10 or 11 song final to a piddling 5, and not one of them contained Bertha Keir either, sadly. It further seems that, regrettably, the Danish final is not available on the tube view either, so I've got two choices here. I can either search for days and try and find the five songs, listen to them and then tell you what I think, or I could make shit up. Any ideas, Alexia? You know you want to make shit up. Yeah, I do, but in the interests of me being a podcast with integrity, I'll just say that four of the five songs in this contest were a bit toss. 
the runner-up. It's seemingly a song about the coming of the single currency, which Denmark were and still aren't a part of. I didn't look the lyrics up because, well, really? The winner, though, is a pleasant song by a very tall, good-looking man and a woman that was slightly less stunning. The song was entitled Denagong, Danish for this time. Yeah, now you can sing it. Thank you, prima donnas. If there's a place in your heart for me, there's a room in my place for you. Let's move this on to Israel, shall we? Where we find our intrepid duo in jovial mood in the first rehearsals, with all of the guys wearing shorts and Michael warming up in an operatic style before launching into this mid-tempo shuffle pop that we've now grown to accept as typically Danish. As has become traditional at their press conference, they sang their song in the native language, just to prove they could. And that went surprisingly down well with the gay, sorry press in the ICC. It wasn't all plain sailing for the affable Danes, though. The garb they wore on the night procured from the Israeli version of Primark because the stringent security at Ben Gurion Airport doesn't extend to being fastidious when it comes to delivering your bags to the right people, or in their case even at all. They weren't perturbed by this minor mishap and performed the song with assured competence on stage, which, as we all know by now, is the biggest sign of an average song one can write. It got 12 from Iceland, naturally, and an 8 from Sweden and a 6 from Estonia. But it either picked up nothing or middling points from the rest of Europe, who, it turned out, had become ambivalent. It ended up in 8th place with 71 points. The self-confessed Villa fan Michael would only wish his team got that many points these days. Now, we've all met the odd nutcase at Eurovision-related events, haven't we? I mean, I could slander any number of people by doing a quick description, but my lawyers tell me that wouldn't be wise. Imagine, though, if one of those nutcases actually not only entered a song for your favourite contest, but went on to win the ticket for it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you La Selection Francaise 1999. It wasn't just the eventual winner that was aboard the train to Crazy Town, of which more later... The whole selection itself was smelling of odormental from the get-go. On tender, the channel tasked with showing the contest chose not to. You'd think that a major international event would take precedence over, say, a rugby game, but not in France. Rugby's a massive draw and the contest isn't. It wasn't a fair fight and the 30 sweaty men won the day, and, just for the record, Toulouse beat Montferrand 15-11 in the French Championship final. Francois were then handed for contest in a velvet box fit for a king and were told to make the best of it. Not that the French broadcaster cared, they just shrugged and muttered something inaudible because they didn't have to care, because this was the first contest when the four largest contributing nations to the Eurovision, Spain, Germany, the United Kingdom of Stuff and France, were exempt from having to qualify for this contest or, as in the case of 1999, have their average scores taken into consideration. They knew they'd be back in 2000, 
so that must have played a bit into the calculations as to where you put the contest. French composers, though, were different. They still cared quite a lot and submitted 600 songs for that rarest of things in France, a national final. One unintended consequence of Anten Deux not broadcasting the contest was that for the first time in 12 years there would be a televised selection to pick the French entry. Would wonders never cease and perhaps the change of broadcaster bring great things after all? Well, not so much because the new broadcaster hadn't read the memo about getting the best 12 songs to a televised final and rather went for a scattergun approach to the entries that ranged from the awfully hideous... To the downright hideous, and I know that's a very narrow band, but such was the overall quality, and I use that word loosely and under advisement. The result was going to be given by the old 50-50 televote and jury mix, but in a twist, the placings that they gained in each half would be the points they scored. This would become relevant shortly. The song in Breton would have done really well. Had the singer have remembered where to sing and not come in eight bars too early when the Breton instruments were played. They ended up fourth. In third, they placed the good-looking lad singing his heart out on the basis that he was a good-looking lad singing his heart out because he had trouble singing in tune. Now, do you remember how those points are going to be dished out? No, you literally have the memory of a goldfish, don't you? Well, the winner of the jury ended up being this. <laughs> which is actually head and shoulders above anything else in this bun fight because it got a decent singer, a decent tune, and the addition of the saxophone section of the orchestra swaying and clapping along. The jury clearly loved it too. Sadly though, when presented with a binary choice, the public tend to rail against what's clear and obvious, and went for a song that instead of portraying modern France as forward and outward looking, rather an inward country looking inside their own navel. They achieved this by listening to an old Celine Dion album and taking one of the more rubbish tracks and, seemingly, fluffing it up and ended up with this piece of old starch, sung, if that's the right word, by Naya. The televoters lapped it up because they were French, and it won the televote, but the jurors placed it fourth. This gave her five points. The same score as Jeannie Lean managed, but in a shocking turn of events, that one from the televote carried more weight in case of a tie and Naya was in. The French press didn't care she won the final. They didn't even care she couldn't beat Egon Egerman in a Swiss selection nine years ago with a song that's as frightening as her yellow jacket and her perm. They were considerably more concerned with the fact that she was a member of a cult, and yes, I did say that right. She had been a member of the international realism movement. Alexia, 
What the fuck is realism? Realism teaches that an extraterrestrial species known as the Elohim created humanity using their advanced technology. An atheistic religion, it believes that the Elohim have historically been mistaken for gods. It claims that throughout history the Elohim have created 40 Elohim, human hybrids who have served as prophets preparing humanity for news about their origins. Somehow, and I can't imagine why, the French press picked up on the theme that Alexia hasn't actually mentioned. That they also believe all Jewish people are aliens, and that might actually play rather badly in the land of the Jews and all. Despite the fact that Naya had attained guide level 3 in their hierarchy, she claimed she'd left the IRM in 1996. Some assurances were sought, probably that she wasn't going to open her mouth about anybody being there, and she hopped inside her winged craft and went to Jerusalem. Or a plane, as us sensible people call it. Finally on stage, she did the time-honoured trick of outperforming the song that everyone had seen in the preview video, to such a degree that she confused the press into thinking that it wasn't that bad after all. It's okay, we've all been there. Some of us more than others, it has to be said. The questioning of her being a cult member, not a euphemism, was shut down by the head of the delegation at their press conference and by Naya herself, who said that she loved Israel as it was the cradle of humanity and, presumably, not the alien equivalent of a motorway service station for all those big-eyed alien types. The song, remember that? It's about Celine, sorry, Naya, getting a voice and not being afraid to use it. Well, the 1990 Swiss final already told us that. But seemingly in the intervening nine years, the cult, or the French, not sure which, hadn't taught her how to choose the difference between those you should attack and those you should defend. She went for everything and by god if she missed them she was going to miss them spectacularly, which of course she did, frequently, and too often for the viewing public who must have thought, that sea lion Dion has changed a bit, she can't ask sing as good now as she's drowned on Titanic. The song was left treading water at the bottom of the scoreboard with 14 points, 8 of which were from the Norwegian televoters for reasons I never fully understood, to finish in a lowly 19th place. Naya went back to the cult where she's a member to this day. Francois gained the contest for another good decade and a half, and everyone was frightfully relieved they hadn't been abducted. The Dutch National Song Festival of 1999 has taken on almost mythical status in this house, and in my small circle of Eurovision chums too. Not because it's especially good, I mean it's okay, and there are lots of average songs, no no. This particular selection is talked about in hushed tones because of one song. Email to Berlin is quite possibly the best worst thing to happen to Eurovision ever. Now that's a very broad statement indeed, because that encompasses the whole cornucopia of crap from someone fainting in an Austrian final, all the way to those feigned nil pointers, but to score very little in a 10 song final from the televote, less than 2%, and to be the butt of jokes of the presenters during the jury scoring, where 9 of the 10 songs would score points and invariably yours was going to score 0 or 12, is funny. And you know, to me, Vienna and Slovenia. 
The girls, for their part, were also quite happy to be the butt of jokes that evening, so good on them, I say. But it did look genuinely crushing when the televote result came through, though. At the other end of the happiness scale was our winner, which, as you can guess, was relatively untroubled, scoring 42% of the televotes and a massive wad of jury points. In a decidedly weak field, a song that was actually competent would have done well, and there's no doubt that Marlene Brackett's Dutch version was clearly more than competent. She was, though, singing a song that was not all that great when you break it down. It's very formulaic and musically it doesn't do any gymnastics. It's also definitely sung in recognisable English, which is a plus because the Dutch language version, which, fact fans, is not an official version, but a cover version sung by some chances, would have made the song high on the double-date painted disaster scale if it got to the Eurovision. Marlene also has the addition of that good old Eurovision staple, the superfluous guitarist, complete in this flavour with lots of curly hair. Truly a match made in Eurovision hell. With 10,000 guilders in their combined back pockets, they all made the trip to Jerusalem. Ye old trip to Jerusalem is a grade 2 listed public house in Nottingham which claims to have been established in 1189, although there is no documentation to verify this date. God almighty, is there not an off switch on her? She was touted by the fans as a pre-contest favourite, presumably on the back of the notion that singing a Schlager song was not the right thing to do. More of my ire on that later. And the actual singing and rehearsals did nothing to undermine her position. Her voice took a pounding though, turning from song thrush to Mia Martini in just a couple of days. Evidently the question was asked, presumably by some website or other, about Marlene Brackett's Cyprus, and the Dutch version was very diplomatic by not answering the question at all. Well done, love. She did, though, mention that her frock was something like a dress she rejected for her wedding 12 months before, and I think that tells you all you need to know about how exciting and thrilling she clearly was. But it's the result that matters, and the Dutch delegation were all excitable when the voting started. However, as with so many Dutch songs, the Niagara Falls worth of points that the delegation were expecting ended up being a weak little piddling stream at best as the voting went on and, if anyone knows their Eurovision, this trend would only get worse before it got better. She did get some points though, 71 of them with a 12 from Belgium, of course, and one solitary 8 points from the UK. But lots of low scores doesn't have any impact on the scoreboard so a tie for 8th place is all they were dealt. And that's all Phil and his exhausted writing team wrote for the first half of 1999. Join us later, or in a couple of weeks if you follow this live for more shenanigans. Thanks for listening and see you all later. Hey me, link into the Dallas theme music for no reason.